Here are some characters you know from Shakespeare. First, Lady Macbeth. Romeo and Juliet. And finally, everyone's favorite, here's Falstaff. Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Shakespeare's plays came late to the world of opera, but once they got there, librettists and composers tried, though not always successfully, to give them the operatic touch. In French, German, sometimes in English, and most triumphantly in Italian, a handful of Shakespeare's stories and characters have sung their way across the stages of European and American opera houses. We know that opera can be something of a mystery to many people, so consider this a kind of primer for the world of operas based on Shakespeare. As our guide, we've asked Colleen Fay. Colleen was a music librarian at the Library of Congress and she was the founding head of the Performing Arts Library at the Kennedy Center. But she's best known here in the Folgers hometown of Washington, D.C. as a regular on the local public TV arts roundup around town and the local public radio magazine show Metro Connection. That's where we all came to know her wardrobe of fabulous caftans and her enthusiastic advocacy for opera, which some people might call quintessentially operatic itself and that we all know and love for being as insightful as it is passionate. We call this podcast, Come, Sing. Colleen Fay is interviewed by Barbara Bogate. When did the first operas based on Shakespeare appear? Well, you know, it's interesting. They really don't appear until Shakespeare's been dead for 150 years. Now, there's some little idea that you can say that Purcell wrote The Fairy Queen in 1695, and that's sort of on Shakespeare, but that's both stretching Shakespeare and stretching the definition of opera. So if you really want to get technical, it's really not till the end of the 18th century when you get to Shakespeare and opera, and to be absolutely on the firmest ground, it's the beginning of the 19th century, believe it or not, Shakespeare's dead 200 years before he crosses the opera stage. So that's pretty wild, because opera started springing up in Italian cities in around 1600, Mm -hmm. right? So why didn't opera become popular in England during Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of cross-currents that are going on. 
Number one, there's this wacky thing called the English Channel. <laughs> and that means that, among other things, English culture is cut off. And a throwback to that is the way it was in the old Roman times. The Romans thought that every good cultural thing came from Greece. And the English, for hundreds of years, thought that every good cultural thing came from Europe. Number two, opera originates in Italy. And for the first 150, 200 years of opera, if it's not in Italian, it's not opera. And people are stubbing their toes. Uh, Handel loses his shirt because he's producing these <laughs> operas in Italian. And by the middle of the 18th century, nobody wants to go to see them anymore. So what changed? When does opera start in, in England? It sounds like it's is it part of the Restoration? Well, actually, no. What happens is a little thing called the Beggar's Opera. Thinks his trade as honest as mine. A liar is an honest employment, so is mine. Like me, too, he acts in a double capacity, both against drugs and for them. Which is what we would call a musical. Its songs are basically like English folk songs. The dialogue is all spoken. Without dispute, she is a fine woman. It was to her I was obliged my education. Tis woman that seduces all mankind. By all we first were taught the The jokes are bawdy, they're ordinary, there are things that anybody can understand. So you get ordinary people, as well as the aristocracy, and you have this convergence of music, popular culture, and all of a sudden, opera is looked as something for the very, very rich and famous, not for the likes of you and me, Barbara. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, what do you mean? Is, is it like 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 fine French wine or something? Is it a, is it a, a, oh, about it's very foreign. It's very foreign, and of course, you and I, of course, understand everything in Italian, don't we? I don't have to say that, do we? And of course, we don't. That's why when you go to the, one of these Italian operas, you buy from one of these little word books. That's why they're called librettos, little book, with all the translations from Italian into English. <laughs> So, so it's kind of a mess. As you say, you have all these things going on. How then did you get these first operas based on Shakespeare? Well, Shakespeare crosses the English Channel in the middle of the 18th century. Shakespeare with happy endings. Translate them into French, translate them into German, into Italian, and they start writing this. But there's a problem with Shakespeare and opera. Shakespeare plays are talky. Oh, and talky is not good for opera. No, 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 girl. What we want <laughs> is we want the we want action, 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 action comes to a grinding screeching halt, and then you sing for five minutes about your reaction to it. I want the big feelings, I want the big reaction. What's in your heart? I want your best girlfriend to tell me. Second thing about Shakespeare besides the talk, 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 too many people on the stage. 
too many plots, too many subplots. Now, wait a minute, Mercutio and Tybalt. Now, is Tybalt, is he the cousin of the brother of the too complicated? Keep it simple, mom, dad, boy, girl, one conflict, one other conflict, that's an opera. Plus, in order for opera to work, we gotta have love and vendetta. We have to have somebody going after somebody else with a big knife in Act 1 that doesn't get resolved until Act 3. How many Shakespeare operas can, or plays rather, can you think of that have that kind of play device in them? Well, some great composers figured out how to work around this, and Rossini is one of them. And he, yes, he, he does. His Otello is this great example of an opera that does owe a lot to Shakespeare. And we're going to hear some of it in a moment. But I first I want to ask you, how faithful is Rossini's Otello to the plot of Othello? Well, for the first couple of—now, first of all, that's a great opera, by the way. But what makes it great is that he and his librettist— knew what to cut because when you are you and I Barbara when we're writing our Shakespeare opera we have to get out our red pencil and our scissors and we have to cut 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 and unfortunately one of the people who's going to end up on our kitchen floor is poor Cassio but we got to add somebody because guess what we never even get them out of Venice there's no Cyprus No, they don't go to Cyprus. They stay in Venice the whole time. But in order for it to stay in Venice, they got to add something. A gondolier. The gondolier is singing a song about his family, about the love that he has for his wife, about after a long day of polling his way, he's going back to his family. And oddly enough, the words come not from Shakespeare, but from Dante. But Desdemona hears this, and it calls to mind a song that her own mother sang to her when she was a girl. It's the perfect setup for something which does come straight out of Shakespeare, the Willow Song. what we're listening to. Well, she's saying this song so evokes what sadness is. Both, uh, It's completely apart from anything we've heard anywhere in the opera, but it's so poignant that it sets up something in us, the audience. 
We know something bad is about to happen. Now she doesn't know, Desdemona doesn't know what he's so angry about. She only knows that she's lost his love. And so the song which talks about losing love is so perfect because of that very reason. So here we have some uh, Shakespeare almost directly, but as you say, so much is different in in Rossini's opera. There's another classic Shakespeare opera, Verdi's Macbeth. So how does that compare to the Rossini? Is it as faithful or faithless to the plot and, and Shakespearean language? Well, it's very, very different from Shakespeare. Again, most of the subplots are gone. And Lady Macbeth is a lot more important in this play in this opera, rather, and the witches just figure very briefly. The king is killed very quickly. We do have a, a wonderful little scene, which I'd like to talk about for a second, because in the in the play, he has this moment where his wife is telling him, you got to go kill the king, and he has this vision. Is this a dagger I see before me? And those are the very words he sings in Italian. It's sort of faithful to what Shakespeare had in mind without its being faithful to Shakespeare's words. Here's a guy early on in the opera and early on in the play who's blinded by ambition and also his wife's ambition. And he's both pumped up by ambition and he's also becoming unhinged. And that becoming unhinged, while it's in Shakespeare's play, it's much more pronounced in the opera. (laughs) 
Verdi wrote his first operas in the late 1820s, right? And, and he eventually wrote, I think, three Shakespeare-related ones. Yeah, yeah. But how well-known were Shakespeare's plays in Italy at that time? Very little. But the interesting thing about Verdi is that he fell in love with Shakespeare. Now, here's a guy who doesn't speak English. He could understand English, and he meets in one of his first operas this singer. She does speak English. She becomes his mistress and later his wife. And she and he become this great collaborative team and she reads Shakespeare to him in English, in Italy. And so, you know, when you're learning a language, you, you can't speak it yet. But when somebody is speaking it to you, you can understand it. Well, that's, I think, the way they were. Very... This is, sounds like an opera. This is such <laughs> a love story. And you're talking about uh, she, who eventually became his wife, uh, what is it, Giuseppina Straponi? Yes, Giuseppina Straponi. That's his life mate, really. She's a brilliant woman in her own right. And Verdi, a man who lived with tremendous success, but was we would say he was clinically depressed today. And he needed somebody like that so close to him. But he takes these three operas, Macbeth, then Otello, and then the cream of his operas, is Falstaff, much, much later in life. He writes this in his 70s. Let's step back from the text, and and I have a, a kind of more general question, which is, does the popularity of Verdi's Shakespearean opera have more to do with Shakespeare or, or with Verdi's genius and, and reputation? Well, you know, that's a really hard question to answer. Let me tell you why it's hard to answer. Verdi, by the time he comes to write this opera, he is the Stephen Sondheim, the Rodgers and Hammerstein of Italy at this time. He was Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes, that too, only he was an old man by this time. And he said, oh, I'm too old to write any more operas. Oh, I just should sit back and let the young ones have it. But their initial reaction, this is to get back to your question, Barbara, their initial reaction is they go to see what Verdi's going to do. But I'm sure they come out of that opera house falling in love with Shakespeare. I mean, Verdi didn't pick a play by Joe Schmo or Mary, <laughs> you know, Mary Nobody. Right. Although there is this cliche that the best operas come from second-rate playwrights. 
Baloney. So, so were, 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 were other, you know, French and Italian and German uh, playwrights, were they also getting the opera treatment that, at the time? Yeah, they were. I mean, you get uh, somebody like Verdi is also writing Don Carlo, with it, which is based on a play by Schiller. Uh, Tchaikovsky writing Eugene Onegin, which is based on a great verse drama by Pushkin. I mean, you know, they're going for the best. Why do they go for the best? Because it's the best material. And, yeah, some of the lesser lights produce something that's not half bad. But don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that second best is going to produce first rate. No, it doesn't. The best will produce the best. Let me ask you this, because you've pointed out all the ways that Shakespeare doesn't work in opera. But when does Shakespeare work? And what, and where do you see that in Verdi? I mean, what, what scenes especially lend themselves to an operatic um, treatment? Well, believe it or not, where Shakespeare really works best in opera is when the librettist finds that one line or two whether it's actually written into Shakespeare's text or whether it is implied in Shakespeare's text, where situation, character, and scene all come together in a very, very few words. And all of a sudden, it's like you've got that, your little camera, and all of a sudden, the autofocus brings it into utterly, totally sharp focus, and you say, yes. That's what Shakespeare meant. I've read that play. I've watched productions. I've seen it in the tube. I watched it in the movies. But it wasn't until I heard him sing those words that I knew what Shakespeare meant. And for me, it happens in Otello, and it happens with the character of Iago. You know, guy who goes along, gets along, does what he has to do, but is really a louse underneath and an emotional devil and he says it when he finally admits I believe in a cruel God credo in Dio Crudel. I'm evil it's because God is cruel. God is evil. You can't blame me for being true to myself. The brutality of his honesty goes through you like a knife. And Verdi's music is so perfectly matched to it that it just, it's a searing moment. Now, what's interesting to me is that, you know, there have been more than 300 operas to plays by Shakespeare, but there's only a handful that are worth talking about. Mozart tried to do one, couldn't do it. Beethoven tried to do one, he couldn't do it. Brahms tried, he failed. Stravinsky did. 
I mean, just about Debussy spent 20 years trying to write an opera on As You Like It. Gave up. The thing is, well, but you have these wonderful characters. Mm -hmm. You would think that they're custom made. Like you have a love story in Hamlet. Why hasn't Hamlet worked as an opera? Well, Ophelia dies. And, you know, what are you going to do with Hamlet where by the last scene, oh, we don't know what to do with you, so we'll kill everybody. Uh, Now, there is one opera in the French repertoire by Ambrose Thomas called Amlet. It's an opera which, like a lot of French wines, does not travel well. And it's for that reason I didn't include it because outside of France, it really isn't performed very much. And these that I've chosen are ones that basically make the cut, as it were. Well, what about English operas? Now, what's in that category? Well, English operas, you know, it's very funny about the English. And to a certain extent, we English speakers, we inherit this kind of prejudice that we're afraid of operas in English because it just couldn't be that good, Barbara. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. really, it's, mm-hmm. I this, hear you. It's this dirty little secret, which is baloney, absolute baloney. Benjamin Britten in 1960 works with his collaborator, Peter Pears, and writes a very decent opera on Midsummer Night's Dream. He does it, takes a few little liberties. He basically cuts off the first act and starts the whole thing in the woods. Uh, but it's pretty faithful. It's, it's virtually verbatim out of Shakespeare. It's the only opera that I know only Shakespeare opera, which is verbatim Shakespeare. Oh, let's listen to something from Britain's Midsummer, where you can really hear that it's all from the Shakespeare. And this is the How Now Mad Spirit from Midsummer. It's Act 3, Scene 2. And uh, Robin is reporting back to Oberon that he bewitched Titania, and she's fallen in love with Bottom. How now, mad spirit! What night will know about this haunted grove? See, see, my mistress with a monster is in love. My mistress with a monster is in love. This sounds much more like musical theater to me than opera. Is that off base? I mean, it, it may be a little bit like Gilbert and Sullivan almost. Well, you're right. It has that kind of feel to it. There is no following her in this fierce rain. Here, therefore, for a while I will remain. So, so those fair I go, I go, look how I go, swifter than arrow from the Tartars, boom! I, I love the, this play because the, as with the best of the Shakespeare comedies, you've got levels of humor that are going on. You've got the kingly types up here. You've got the middle level types, the humans. You've got the, the lower levels. You've got the fairies going sideways, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And whose allegiance is owed to whom 
and who's going to interfere with whom. And then you have Puck running sideways, and who does he answer to? To Oberon. And is Oberon really the good guy, or is he the bad guy? And is to you know does he really love Titania or not? So all of these things are at play, and I when I think of this, I'm sorry, I have a terrible image in mind that goes back to thousands of years ago with the Ed Sullivan Show. Do you remember the guy would get out there with the plates on the spinning bamboo poles? Oh, of course. Right? Right. And that's what that's I think wonderful. of when, when I think of Midsummer Night's Dream is the guy with the spinning plates. He's running across the stage, keeping these plates spinning at all times. And the genius of Benjamin Britten's opera, first of all, it's light. Even though the and one of the things that he does to keep it that way is that the role of Oberon was originated by one of the very first countertenors in modern times. Alfred Deller. But hast thou yet latched the Athenian's eyes with the love juice as I did Bithino? Your point about it sounds more like musical comedy is dead on the money. And that's one of the things about Shakespeare that sometimes we have a tendency to lose sight of. We put Shakespeare on the pedestal where Shakespeare belongs, you know, one of those little plaster pedestals, the little bus up in the corner of the classroom in the professor's office, you know. No, 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 no. Shakespeare was for anybody who could afford a ticket to the Globe Theater. He didn't care who you were. And we were down there in the middle of the Globe Theater, and it was that perfect O for us, whether it was the battlefield at Agincourt or the Scottish Moor or wherever it was, the plays were for us. And the same thing with these operas. We have a tendency to put opera up on this pedestal. Oh, it's, for, it's just for Saturday afternoon for people who truly understand opera, Barbara. You know, uh, I don't have to tell you that, do I? <laughs> no, no. It's about entertainment. It's about enjoyment. It's about pleasure. It's about people singing pretty songs that make you laugh. They make you cry. And if they ain't making you laugh or making you cry, something's wrong. And that's why I love Shakespeare operas. They make me laugh. They make me cry. This is why I love them. Well, Colleen, I've been so thoroughly entertained talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Colleen Fay was a music librarian at the Library of Congress and founding head of the Performing Arts Library at the Kennedy Center and a regular on Around Town on WETA-TV and Metro Connection on WAMU-FM. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Come Sing, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. My guess is that you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. If I'm right, please do us a favor. Leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That's really the best way to let other people know what we're doing. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. 
You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face-to-face with one of our first folios, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.